This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. There are three major valleys in Sicily. These valleys have serious historical significance, but we're going to focus on the Norman movements around just one of them on this episode, the Val Dumon. In English, this translates to the Valley of Demons, but it has no relation to the religious connotation of demon. In fact, it's something much more beautiful, something akin to the ancient Greek connotation of daemon, meaning, roughly, a source for inspiration. In fact, the Arabic name for the Valdemon, which is Wadi al-Daum, translates to Valley of Mulberries, connotating something of a natural inspiration to the people who traveled through or settled there. It's a beautiful region accentuated by varying geographic features, from mountains to plateaus, from low river valleys to rolling grassy hills. It's seen numerous civilizations in its day, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, and the Arabs. And it was now, for the very first time, going to witness the barbarity and steadfastness of the Normans. This is episode 112, and it's entitled, Conquering the Val d'Amon. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Duke Robert of Apulia and Calabria and Sicily, also known as Robert Guiscard, arrived in Messina in the late summer of 1061, only to find that the reason for his easy crossing, the reason for the mighty Palermitan naval blockade to have suddenly sailed off en masse back to Palermo that very morning, well, that was due to his little brother, Count Roger of Reggio, having taken the entire city of Messina with a mere few hundred soldiers. Most Saracens escaped Messina and fled to the interior of Sicily, most running in terror toward the most powerful emir on the island, a man named Ibn al-Hawas, whose largest fortified city, Enna, was a mountaintop fortress, smack dab in the middle of the island. Those who didn't leave were in fact slaughtered, and the expected looting, raping, and pillaging were now the were how the Normans celebrated their taking of the mighty city in northeastern Sicily. Norwich writes in his book, The Other Conquest, quote, The Guiscard was only too pleased to see them go. Above all, he must ensure the security of Messina. The last thing he wanted was a large, untrustworthy element in the population. End quote. Certainly a lesson as old as time. Guiscard was left with really just Christians mostly Greek Orthodox Christians, but Christians nonetheless. No one was really quite sure how each side would, re- would react, as remember Latin and Greek Christians were different enough to have a palpable disapproval cast in either's directions. But this tension was broken almost immediately when the churches of Messina, all of the churches, Catholic and Greek Orthodox alike, ordered feasts of thanksgiving to be had throughout the city to welcome their Christian liberators. During these feasts, Robert Guiscard held many meetings with the sole purpose of quickly modifying the city to become one of the most fortified in the Norman world. There were no delusions that the Muslim Sicilians would return 
to reclaim the strategically vital city of Messina. Norwich writes, quote, Robert's next task was to transform Messina into the impregnable bridgehead he needed. For a week without respite, day and night, his army worked on the defenses. Walls were rebuilt and extended, ramparts raised, towers fortified, new earthworks dug. When all was ready, a contingent of cavalry was installed as permanent garrison. End quote. Now, Norwich says this new garrison at Messina was large enough that it was an apparent hit to his battlefield numbers, but our historian adds, quote, where Messina was concerned, he could afford to take no chances, end quote. That, in and of itself, shows us the absolute necessity of the city of Messina in the Norman conquest of Sicily. Without Messina, none of it would have happened. And it was, as Messina was being prepped and stocked, the former emir of the area, Ibn al-Timna, the same exiled emir that persuaded Roger to persuade his brother, Duke Robert, to head to Sicily for another crack at the island after the first venture just a year earlier in 1060. Well, Ibn al-Timna showed back up at this time. And it's at this point that Norwich calls Ibn al-Timna a quote-unquote sinister figure which is quite telling. He was eager to take as much advantage of the Normans being in Sicily as he could, namely, well, potentially toppling his sworn enemy, the powerful Emir Ibn al-Hawas. If he could persuade the Normans to get rid of al-Hawas, then his place at the top of the Sicilian hierarchy would be secure. From there, he would worry about what to do about the resident Normans on the island, but that was a problem for future Ibn al-Timna. For the time being, Duke Robert gave Altimna much of his area back, basically just giving him his former domain of Catania, which lies along the central eastern coast of Sicily, below Messina and Mount Etna and above the port city of Syracuse. They, that is, Duke Robert Guiscard and Emir Ibn Altimna, that is, needed one another. With Guiscard ruling Messina and the northern tip of Sicily, and Altimna ruling all of the way south to Syracuse, that was, for all intents and purposes, the entire eastern portion of the island. For the time being, that arrangement would have to do, and that it did. Now, that said, there was a little bit of shade thrown at the Muslim Saracens by the contemporary chronicler Malaterra. As he is narrating the two brothers, Robert and Roger, setting off for their next conquest at the town of Rometta, he tells us that the people of Rometta sent an envoy to Robert appealing for peace and surrender of the town without bloodshed. They'd heard plenty about these Normans, and they wanted nothing of them in terms of fighting and resisting them. They swore fealty to Robert's rule to boot. But Malaterra adds this one line, which once again reminds me that the crusading fervor wasn't just whipped up in 1095. Malaterra wrote, quote, Swearing fealty with oaths taken on their books of superstitious law. End quote. Superstitious law. That's what many chroniclers believed about Islam in the late 11th century, and it was quite widespread around the Mediterranean region. Make no mistake, all the goings-on over in Iberia around this time, remember El Cid and Cordoba's collapse into the Taifa kingdoms and whatnot? Yeah, all of that. Make no mistake, 
That was very, very common knowledge to all across Christendom. And after stories were told and retold, and then retold again a few more times, making their ways around the medieval world, well, these stories became so diluted that all that was properly communicated was that the Christians in the north were fighting against the Muslims in the south. So you can see how the Normans invading Sicily was also transmitted around Christendom. Without question, though it was most likely a land grab in the classic Norman fashion, it was a religious war to those who could capitalize upon that message. And to think, we're still more than 30 years away from the Crusades itself, themselves. Robert took the peace deal with the people of Rometta, and for the time being, the Normans camped near the town of Trippi. The next day, they pushed on to the small city of Frazano, which fell in much the same way as Rometta, and it was here that the Normans became a bit overconfident thinking that the bigger cities were the only resistance they would be facing in this conquest. We'll see how that overconfidence treats them shortly, but as they traveled down the plain of Maniakis, yeah, that was the impact of George Maniakis' Eastern Roman invasion just a few decades earlier. They named a little grassland after the general. Well, Norwich even acknowledges it when he writes, quote, Two days' journey from Rometta to Frazano, at the foot of the pass leading up to the so-called Pianur de Maniecki, the plateau on which the gigantic George and the first of the young Hautevilles had distinguished themselves 21 years before, end quote. Well, anyway, as they traveled down the plain of Maniakis, which was, as I said, a smallish, high, grassy plain within the much larger Valdemone, well, what they found nearly shocked the two brothers and their Norman knights. Marching and riding through the valley, they found Latin and Greek Orthodox Christians flocking miles to greet them and bring them food and gifts. It instilled upon them that they had a deeper purpose for conquering Sicily. It might have been here when the Normans finally embraced the first stirrings of that crusading spirit. Who knows for sure, but it's likely. These people were clearly living in fear. Malaterra wrote, quote, They claimed as an excuse, for their previous conduct, that is, with regard to the Saracens that they had done this not for love of them, but to protect themselves and what was theirs. And now they would serve the brothers with unbreaking fealty, end quote. Robert and Roger swore to protect these people and were thankful for the support shown. They also promised that if they should win Sicily, assuming these Christians would help them in the effort, that is, that they would reward them with lavish gifts of thanks. It was a nerve-wracking journey, make no mistake. They hadn't come upon any real opposition, but word from his Saracen and Norman scouts were pretty much all reporting back to him that Emir Ibn al-Hawas from Enna was preparing a massive army of resistance against the Norman invasion. Robert and Roger were very much on guard, but no visible signs as of yet appeared on these reports. So they, they marched on. Through the plains of Maniakis, thus the Valdemon at large, Robert led his Normans to the next big city called Centuripe, Apparently, the typical word of warning that preceded all Norman movement throughout the medieval world didn't sway the people of Centuripe. 
as when the Normans arrived outside the walls of the city, they saw each and every rampart manned and ready for a fight. Malaterra wrote, quote, Our men attacked the city bravely, but when they saw their men being harassed by slingers and archers and would be unable to achieve anything against the town without heavy casualties, the brothers called off the assault, particularly since they had heard that the Saracens were nearby and threatening battle, end quote. This was the Norman way of warfare, as we've mentioned before on the podcast. Remember, Roger failed at this during his first foray onto the island just a year earlier. Robert ordered it and modeled it perfectly. Do not endanger your men without an almost certainty of victory. Only engage when it is all but certain that that engagement will benefit you. Malaterra added to this, quote, they wanted to keep our men unwounded and their numbers undiminished to face them, end quote. Normans, from William the Conqueror to Duke Robert Guiscard, and every one of them in between knew this rule of war. Now, Roger was taught it firsthand. And with that, Centuripe remained in Muslim hands. For now. Robert ordered his entire army to keep marching eventually settling in the next valley grassland called the Plain of Paterno. This was a very wide and relatively flat plain, which would suit the Norman strategy perfectly, allowing them to maximize their cavalry's usefulness, something they've been weary about since they arrived due to the rocky, uneven nature of Sicily's landscape, especially in the volcanic and mountainous northeast. They stayed here in the Plain of Paterno for eight days. They prayed that it would be here that they could lure the island's armies to engage them, but the Saracen scouts, their Saracen, their Saracen scouts, I should, I should specify, men under the rule of Emir Ibn al-Timna, well, they informed the, the brothers that no one was coming. They did receive very little pockets of Muslim resistance, but as chronicler Amatus of Monte Cassino wrote, the Muslims melted away, quote, unquote, like wax before a fire. This was rather disappointing, and as I've said before in the podcast, an invading army simply cannot afford to stand still for long. So, Robert ordered his army to pack up and leave on day nine, out of the plain of Paterno. On this next march, they encountered something that shocked me when I read about it. I even had to do some other cross-research to make sure, and it seems accurate. Crazy, but accurate but maybe that's just me. See, as Robert's army moved across Sicily, they came across Saracens. Many of them, I'm assuming, had come from Messina just weeks earlier, who had taken refuge in the limestone caves between Messina and Enna along the Valdemone. As Malaterra says, they flushed these folks out of the caves. He wrote, quote, These they attacked, beginning with the largest, killing many of the inhabitants. Then they went on to the mills on the bank on the river below Castro Giovanni, where they pitched camp, end quote. So these folks had fled to the caves in the region where they joined other agricultural communities and helped run the mills. But Normans required unbending loyalty, and where it was not given, they deleted you from the equation. To them, warfare was just that simple. But it did something that we can only assume was the very purpose for the slaughter in the first place. 
it forced Ibn al-Hawas away from Enna to engage the Norman army. See, Robert Guiscard had been moving steadily toward Enna the entire time, and he found himself through the Valley of Detaino. He had led his men directly into the heart of enemy territory and closer to his main enemy's hometown of Enna. In fact, settling his army, as Norwich says, quote, among the watermills immediately beneath the great crag of Inna itself, end quote. Robert was daring Ibn al-Hawas to act. Norwich adds, quote, Of all the mountain fortresses of Sicily, Enna was among the highest and the most forbidding, end quote. He tells us that just 200 years earlier, the Muslims who invaded Sicily from northern Africa couldn't take the city outright, so they sent a man up through the city's sewers in order to open the gates. Photographs of Enna today show a castle atop a mountain peak with a breathtaking 360-degree panoramic view of the Sicilian central highlands. It's a wonder how anyone could take the city by storm, something Norwich admits just simply wasn't possible, which Robert could very quickly know upon seeing it from the riverbank below. And due to the approaching winter season, Robert was desperate to avoid a siege. Normans could pull off a siege with the best of them, but it just wasn't feasible at the moment. Norwich writes, quote, For four days the Normans waited in a mood of mounting frustration, laying waste the surrounding countryside and doing their impatient worst to needle the emir into action. On the fifth day, they succeeded. End quote. The Battle of Enna commenced. However, it's worth noting a few things first. As with all estimations of military numbers at this time in history, we should take them with an absolute grain of salt. Many times, if not every time, chroniclers inflate and deflate numbers to make their benefactor look all the better. So, when Malaterra reports Robert's army was only 700 strong, which might have been true, while Ibn al-Hawas's army was 15,000 strong, well, I mean, but here's the thing. These numbers, though probably not exact, may not have been very far off in this case. We already know that Robert's army was about 2,200 men from the taking of Messina. Remember, Ro Roger had only about 500 men, while Robert brought over as many as 1,500 men. From here, we're told that Robert garrisoned Messina with so many knights that it made a visible impact on his battlefield army. So, could Robert have left 800 knights back in Messina? Very likely, actually. On the one hand, you may say that 800 knights is a ton of knights to defend a city. However, we can't forget that Ibn al-Hawas had 800 Saracen warriors he already sent to defend Messina. With that in mind, it seems rather likely that Robert might have left close to 800 men back in Messina. It was that important of a city. That also highlights the fact that Ibn al-Hawas had 800 warriors to spare to defend a city that wasn't even under his direct rule. That would lead us to believe that 800 warriors was a rather small portion of Ibn al-Hawas's overall forces. And with all of that in mind, it seems rather likely that Malaterra's estimates were far closer to the truth than what our rational minds might like us to believe. But, as Norwich writes, quote, 
It may be an exaggeration, but there's nothing inherently improbable about it. One thing, at all events, is clear. The Normans were outnumbered many times over. End quote. Robert Guiscard ordered his army split into two divisions. Ibn al-Hawas split his into three. The numbers were clear as soon as al-Hawas's army made itself present. In addition to the numbers, geography certainly played against the Normans too. They were stuck with their backs against a river, while the Saracens had the plains behind them, not to mention the massive mountaintop citadel right there to resupply them at every moment. By every measure but one, the Normans were facing insurmountable odds. But that one measure made all the difference. See, the Normans were in a foreign land fighting a foreign enemy who knew little of the intricacies of their style of warfare. But most importantly, with the masses of Christians traveling miles to greet them across the Val de Mon, they now had a religious reason to fight. Quote, and so, as Norwich says, the first major engagement on Sicilian soil or anywhere else fought between properly constituted armies of Normans and Saracens ended in a rout, end quote. That's right. One side was routed and the other gave chase, slashing and murdering at the fleeing cowards. I'm going to let you decide which one is which. It turns out that the Normans were actually the victors here. Not shocking when you consider all that we know about the Normans. It's absolutely astounding that these Frenchmen, what they were capable of. Five years before Duke William invaded England and shocked us all through history with some truly incredible and unlikely victories, his Norman brethren were blowing people's minds down south in Sicily. By late afternoon, Robert Guiscard's army of around 700-800 knights had killed upwards of 10,000 Saracens. It's just absolutely incredible. With their backs against a river, they had no other choice. And it's not like Robert was caught off guard either. He maneuvered into position at exactly the spot he wanted, a spot that he knew would force his men into a position where escape was not possible. He knew that his men, coupled with that legendary Norman discipline, as well as bolstered by some strange new religious fervor, Robert Guiscard knew his men. He knew that they would fight until not a man was left standing. And I want you to keep that in mind as Robert Guiscard's story unfolds into the future. In fact, See, these Normans here in the middle of Sicily, they fought so hard that day that only one-third of the enemy's army returned home that night. One-third of his 700 was a lot of men, mind you. One-third of his forces amounted to, what, 225, 250 men? But one-third of an army of 15,000 amounted to just 5,000 survivors. Ibn al-Hawas, effectively, ordered his men into a merciless meat grinder. There's no other way to put it. No other way to, to accurately sum up the Norman victory at the Battle of Enna in 1061. Now, to be fair, we have no idea what the Norman casualty numbers looked like, but they were negligible in that they must have been so slim that Robert felt comfortable ordering a siege before their dead were even gathered from the battlefield. 
This must have been a victory for the ages. And there were so many Saracen dead on the battlefield that Norman survivors were overwhelmed with their cut of the booty. Malaterra wrote, quote, They secured such great spoils that a man who had lost one horse in the battle received ten for one. Undoubtedly, the army as a whole similarly enriched itself, end quote. If Robert Guiscard knew one thing, it was that he could afford to part way with loot and treasure. He was far stingier with land grants and, and power, but money and treasure could be given quite liberally to his men in order to keep their loyalty. He played the long game. Land was the long game when it came to being a world-class ruler in the Middle Ages. Money and treasure came and went, so he was fine showering his men with the goodies as long as he could keep the land. With his powerful enemy utterly debilitated and his men overwhelmed by his generosity, and richer than they'd ever thought they'd be, most of them, Robert Giscard moved his army away from Enna a few miles, outside a town called Narcio. Malaterra said that they stayed there just one night before moving on to Mount Calisibeta, but he realized it was a terrible place to camp an army, so he just pulled up and moved on to Campo di Fonti. But where that location is, we actually no longer know. It's been lost to history. Now keep in mind, Roger de Hauteville, young Roger de Hauteville, has been with us this entire campaign. Robert Giscard, Roger's older brother and duke again, was in charge in making all the decisions. But make no mistake, Roger was right there in all of the major conversations, riding alongside Robert as the army moved around northeastern and central Sicily, and even swinging his sword on the battlefield. But it's here that Roger takes a little agency and branches off from his brother's large force. Malaterra wrote, quote, Disliking a quiet time and anxious for action, Count Roger led 300 Juvenis on a combined raid and reconnaissance mission toward Agrigento, spreading fire and destruction throughout the province. End quote. Now, I should say that it wasn't like Roger just took a few hundred knights and raided the surrounding region to gain loot and gain intelligence. No, Roger took half of Robert's army and blew up the countryside for about 25 miles away from Enna. In the meantime, Robert Giscard packed up his half of the army and headed back toward Messina. Winter was approaching, and he had business to attend to at home in Apulia, where just one year earlier it had erupted when he was away due to the Byzantines and Bari riling up the Lombard peasantry. Who knows what he would return to this time, because we can't forget that the Byzantines were still holding out against a Norman siege in that city of Bari. After a month, Roger and his 300 Norman knights would join his brother in Messina, having replenished themselves by stealing and looting wherever they went. It was a campaign of terror, make no mistake. Roger de Hopeville, by today's standards, was committing overt acts of terrorism across central and eastern Sicily. But today's standards meant nothing to those living a thousand years ago. Absolutely nothing. What's more is that Roger's action included the very Norman tactic of burning the fields, and with harvest approaching, Muslims and Christians alike were far likelier to starve during the course of the winter than to fill their bellies and survive. And with that, Roger left them to, well, figure it out. Fields smoldering in his rearview mirror. 
sounds a lot like what William did in Northumbria, doesn't it? And Robert Guiscard did in Calabria just a few years earlier. But if Roger's forays into terrorism yielded anything beneficial, besides forcing the Saracen residents to come to grips with the invading Normans, was that the news of the Battle of Anna and the humiliating defeat of the, of the mighty Emir Ibn al-Hawas had traveled faster than a Norman knight on horseback. The Valdemone had heard all about what happened at Anna, and increasingly, wherever Roger and his men went, they experienced fewer and fewer instances of resistance in that area. Even the Saracen peasantry wasn't willing to engage with these larger-than-life Frenchmen. Back in Messina, Robert Guiscard could look back and find many, many positives from his latest campaign into Sicily. He was, in name, the Duke of Sicily, wasn't he? But, with all of this activity in Sicily, why was he not Duke of Sicily in more than just name? He held as his own just the northeasternmost tip of the island, the tip that held the city of Messina, the tip that was closest to his Calabria across the strait. But that was it, wasn't it? I mean, his ally, Ibn al-Timna, was the emir of Catania just south of Messina, and though he was a vassal of sorts to Roberts, Catania wasn't exactly under Roberts' direct rule yet. Was he truly the Duke of Sicily? Even defeating the mightiest army on the entire island hadn't yielded him a single square inch of Sicilian territory outside of Messina's region. Not one single square inch. He had certainly enriched his men, which was a great investment, no question about that. But Robert Giscard again didn't care nearly as much about riches as he did about land. Land was where longevity and legacy was found, not a thick checkbook. Robert wanted Sicily's land. He would have to save his land grab for the future, though. His men were eager to get home to their Apulian homes, though it's reported that some did actually choose to stay in Sicily, at the behest of local Greeks, and settle upon Sicilian land. Some even chose to man the castle at San Marco Deluncio as well. But the vast majority of Normans left the island with Robert. When he arrived in Messina, after the long summer campaign, he was greeted by his second wife, Sicilgeta, who, Norwich writes, quote, after a brief tour of inspection of her husband's new domains, bore him triumphantly off to Apulia for Christmas, end quote. Sicilgeta. Just keep an eye on that one. She's, uh, she's pretty awesome, actually. I mean, what other lady would have toured her husband's new lands in order to inspect them and report back to him? Not even the likes of Matilda of Flanders, William's wife, was that bold to tour enemy lands on behalf of her husband. Though, to her immense credit, she did hold down the duchy, that is, Matilda of Flanders, did hold down the duchy while, you know, William was off subduing England. So, you know, there is that. But Sicklegate led Duke Robert back home to great fanfare, it seems. Roger traveled with them. He went as far as the Norman stronghold in Calabria of Mileto, where he bid his brother and sister-in-law adieu. It was November of 1061 at this point, and it wasn't long until Roger became restless once again. By early December, Roger had snuck back across the Strait of Messina. Accompanying him 
were just 250 knights. He tore through the region containing the city of Agrigento, and then he got really ambitious. There was a fortress town that was steeper and higher than Enna, called Troina. It was smaller as the mountaintop that it sat atop wasn't as large as Enna's, but it was a formidable city nonetheless. Formidable. He headed north to Troina to check it out. A surprise that had occurred during his latest venture into Sicily was, apparently, word had spread across the eastern part of the island, and as he approached, local Christians, Greek and Catholic alike, didn't just flock to his side offering gifts, but many of the men and boys simply began following his little army with their own little weapons. These locals wanted to join the fight. Roger, of course, welcomed these unsolicited recruits, though He had to know that compared to his highly disciplined and experienced knights, these locals would be a bit of a handful to maintain and control. But they were warm bodies. And if their mere presence on the battlefield could sway an opposing enemy to not attack, well, then all the better. He'd risk it. When Roger and his army approached the walls of Traina, he learned that the city was largely populated by Greeks who welcomed them in and put up zero fight. Malatera wrote, quote, He then went to Traina to be joyfully welcomed by the Christians who dwelt there. He entered the town and made it subject to him, and there he celebrated the birth of the Lord. End quote. So, between early December and Christmas, Roger had snuck over to Sicily, raided as far west as Agrigento, built up a makeshift army of locals, and taken without a single drop of blood the mighty mountaintop fortress of Troina. Not bad. Not bad at all, actually. And as he was celebrating Christmas, which, by the way, in the Middle Ages was a multiple-week, community-wide celebration, not just one or two days like it is today, well, see, he received a messenger with an urgent piece of news. Someone was waiting for him back in Calabria, and that someone requested Roger's immediate And I mean immediate audience. Thanks for listening. Until next time.